As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Hey guys, Michael here. I got a quick question for you. Do you want Rocketship.fm to continue next year? If so, I'm going to ask for your support financially. For the last year, we've been putting out two episodes a week off of our own sweat equity. We have some sponsors, which is absolutely amazing, but it doesn't quite cover our costs in the entirety. So what we've done is we've put together some amazing gifts for you based on the over 100 conversations we had this year with entrepreneurs and investors, and I know you're going to love them. We've got posters for your office. We've got an entire book where we pulled out the best quotes from the last year. A ton of work, but totally worth it. I loved going back through and rediscovering all the conversations that we had. So go to rocketship.fm forward slash 2015. That's rocketship.fm forward slash 2015 and help us bring you this podcast next year. All right, on to the show. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Michael Saka. Today we talk to Abby Covert, the author of How to Make Sense of Any Mess. Um, Joelle, what was your initial thoughts? So I'm a total geek for this stuff. Um, she talked about information architecture, which um, the concepts she covered can kind of be abstract and a little out there for a lot of people, but she brings them back to these really tangible um, tactical things with examples of how startups are um, approaching these different concepts and really telling the world who they are and who they aren't. Um, my head is spinning from this one. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, um, it was awesome. Uh, she was on. She, she was right on point. And I think the the biggest takeaway is planning. Like this is really about um, taking your idea, your mess, and organizing it for people so that they can understand it. And it, we often just build, 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 and then we make a mess. If you listen to her and, and start to use some of the, the concepts that she lays out, um, it really helps you frame not only the design of your product, but the marketing message, which is the hardest part, right? I mean, 
um, when you guys talked to to Ryan Singer, I feel like this was it was on that level of insight. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's jump into it because it was just fantastic. We'd like to take a moment to thank our awesome sponsors. CodeShip makes continuous delivery simple and easy. Go to CodeShip.com slash RocketShip to get 20% off three months. We'd also like to thank Envision app. Envision is by far the best prototyping and collaboration tool on the market. I can personally say I can't imagine delivering another design comp without it. Go to envisionapp.com forward slash rocketship and sign up to get their starter plan free for 90 days. Customer.io is a modern email platform built for startups. Go to customer.io slash rocketship to start sending emails that convert. So Abby, um, first welcome. And um, tell us what is information architecture? So there's a couple different ways to look at it. There's the first is sort of as an object, which I think is the, the probably the easiest way to grasp. Um, and that is to look at it as the way that we arrange the parts of something to make it more understandable as a whole. So if you're in the restaurant industry, that might be the way that you arrange the parts of your menu um, with the other elements of signage and indicators of uh, place within your restaurant to indicate to people what's going on there, right? It's like sort of how the parts of something come together to make that experience understandable to a user. Um, When we talk about it in the other way, it would be as a practice. So when I say that I am an information architect, the practice of information architecture is the act of deciding kind of which order the pieces of something actually should be arranged in order to communicate a specific meaning. So for example, back to the restaurant idea, I did some work um, for a restaurant chain called IHOP. Uh, and we were working on the menu system there. And by rearranging the pieces of the IHOP menu, we were able to impact what was ordered within the restaurant. At the time, uh, before the menu redesign, believe it or not, at a place like IHOP, the most popular question was actually, what do I order here? Um, Now, (laughs) it is not about that. So we brought the pancakes back by making the pancakes stand out um, to the people who were were perceiving the menu. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what information architecture is. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of psychology in that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the kind of the secret trick of understanding information is that it's not really a thing, right? So everything has information, like websites and mobile applications, uh, you know, even a coffee cup has a certain amount of information to it. But information itself is not actually a thing. It's only what we perceive. So to your point about psychology, it's, it's entirely wrapped up in perception. And what one person looks at Uh, an arrangement and gets out of, um, you know, one person sees the same thing one way, and then another person looks at it and can see something very, very different. So information as a medium can be kind of sketchy to deal with. So how are you, um, like in that situation, are you, do you use testing? Is it, is it like a gut um, kind of call to to what would be the best uh, way to, to design um, these? How do you approach that? So I think there's two parts to it. The first is really understanding your intent, like uh, being honest and true with yourself about what it is you're trying to accomplish and really looking at the the medium of information through that lens. And then I think the second point is marrying that intent with what your users are actually going to respond to. Um, And the only way to really get into that is to really spend time with them and start to model their behaviors. Um, That can come in the variety of testing for sure. And that's something a little later in the game that 
is quite important in terms of making sure that the structural recommendations are as resilient as you think. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, Mm -hmm. there's ways to involve users that are more around uh, the understanding part. So before you have the prototype to test, talking about things like language. Um, You know, I think that a lot of uh, the students that I've had especially in the business world, struggle with the idea that there's not a right way to do a certain thing. So a lot of times um, when you do live in that kind of a, a place where you believe there is a, a right and true way, you're really looking for like the industry standard way. And you can sort of get a, a certain level of these things baked into your product or your project without actually meaning for that to happen. Um, so I think one of the, the big aspects of um, consideration for for businesses is just to step back and really think about like the language part so before there's actually an interface to test what are the the words that you're using to describe the thing that you're actually delivering the service the product um and then how are you actually kind of wrapping that thing in all these other things that need to project that meaning whether it be your website or your social media or a print campaign or, or what have you So how do you get that out amongst all of those different channels? Yeah, we actually talked to someone a while back, um, Brennan Dunn, who um, will send out emails to his list asking questions, kind of open-ended questions, to see what language people come back with about their struggles. Um, And he kind of has a qualitative and quantitative way of combing through that. And then he changes the way he talks to people and uses their own words back to them. Yeah, no, there's like there's this really interesting uh, bringing it back to psychology. There's this really interesting kind of pervasive ailment, uh, I would say, in kind of life, which is uh, linguistic insecurity. So just the thought that language itself can be like a brick wall between us and what we want to do. And I think that, you know, online, we are able to put content out so quickly that it's really easy to believe that if something means something to you as the maker of the thing, that it will also mean that same thing to the person on the other end of wherever. But in reality, uh, the truth behind that is is pretty sketchy, right? What are the chances that it will be exactly the same in my mind after receiving it? So I think that um, it's probably easier to not think about how hard it is. Um, <laughs> You know, I get that a lot. It's like the number one question I get after a conference talk or or anything is, uh, it's you know, well, what if, how do you not spend more time once you've gone down rabbit holes and figure out how much crap is really messed up? And I'm like, uh, I don't have a really good answer for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to unsee. I would warn. It's very hard to unsee what you've seen. What um, do you have any techniques that you use when you're going to work with a client to start to identify or um, build some of that that verbiage that really works? Yeah, yeah. No, I have. um, I actually I totally ripped off the New York Times in this, but um, I take the opposite approach to controlled vocabularies than I would say a lot of information architects might start with. I, I actually encourage my clients very early on in our process to develop a list of words that they do not say. Okay. Um, because I think okay. that sometimes when we pick what we don't say, it says a lot more about us. Um, so, you know, for example, I was working with a, uh, a gambling client here in New York City. That's a, a small startup. And they were working on a video game uh, for gambling. And we talked a lot about their goals and their intention. And it, it was a lot in the vein of understanding who they wanted to be through the lens of who they didn't want to be. And it turned out that they had a competitor that was, you know, very prime in their in their community. And there were certain words that those people used that by not using those words in their product, they were able to push further away. 
Um, so that's that's definitely one technique I would say. Um, and then another one would be mapping. So any kind of ecosystem level mapping that you're able to bring into your organization, I think can be a tremendous help uh, to a company at any stage. And I would also say that a company that is an early stage has the least likely chance of having a ton of barnacles all over it. Um, larger brands, man, do they stuff so fast. So sometimes it really does take somebody going in there and, and starting to scrape them off. And as I said before, once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. So doing that in a very collaborative setting where the top most executives of your organization are present and know um, the airing of the dirty laundry. That's something that I, I find myself helping companies to do quite often. I'm not um, terribly. Now, oh, that. go ahead. Sorry, um, I was just—I'm not terribly familiar with um, the process of, of mapping, and and could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the idea of um, of sort of creating a map of what you're working on is not at all terribly new, right? It's something that we've been doing as uh, cartographers of uh, kind of physical places since you know the 15th or 16th century. Um, but the idea of creating some sort of object that represents our common thinking on a subject, it turns out that psychologically that allows us to go to a different level. Um, so when you and I, for example, if we were in a consulting engagement and you had a company and you wanted me to help you dissect it, if we were to just have a phone conversation without some sort of shared object between us, be it a screen that we're sharing or um, a diagram that I'm doodling on a piece of paper in, in physical space between us, we're able to actually have a different conversation and a conversation that can go much deeper into the details of your business because we have this like place that we've made to go to have that common understanding. Um, so a lot of times, you know, the, the format that the map takes is very much dependent on what the problem space is and who the company is. Um, but what my focus on is kind of whatever that object is, allowing it to come through me. So I like to think about myself sort of like a, like a coffee filter. They pour all of that mess and grind through it, and I give them something that's sort of more drinkable at the end um, in terms of looking at their landscape. So a lot of times that's kind of, you know, taking into consideration that many companies, uh, not some, many, most, I would say, have more than one website at this point. Hmm. You know, they have something, they have a blog, they have a social media platform, they've got, you know, active communication in some kind of message board platform that's connected to their website. I mean, they all have these things um, and sort of taking a look across those things and making sure that efficiency isn't lost and that people aren't lost between them, which oftentimes when you see that no one has analytics or tracking or anything that kind of gives them insight into those, uh, I like to call them the spaces in between uh, the different places that they have. Wow, yeah. How do you know when to eliminate a barnacle? Measurement. Measurement, yeah, it's, okay. It's remarkable how little measurement is, uh, is actually used in the world of it. <laughs> The digital world is incredibly measurable. Um, the physical world is actually incredibly measurable as well. And I think that if you can establish a baseline, um, which usually is something that you can do with a little bit of effort, then you, you have a number that you can improve upon, right? And then it's just putting on your, your scientist coat and looking at it from the standpoint of what does actually move that needle. Um, 
but knowing what you think is the needle to move and then knowing how to move it are like two different tasks um, that often do need to be kind of separated. And I I feel too often they are plumped together. Like there is a set of metrics that you should have. Um, But for example, time on site, um, time on site is not necessarily something that you always want to have really high, right? Yeah. I mean, think about if you're about efficiency, perhaps having that as low as possible while still having a, an audience that is happy. Um, you know, if you want them to pick up the phone and call 1-800 number, your website having a low time on site might actually be a great thing. So I think that looking at measurement, not just in terms of um, kind of heuristics, but also in terms of your context is yeah. uh, an important kind of point. That's a, an amazing, um, that's some great insight. If you were, when you talk to startups and, and you teach at, um, or you taught at, at General Assembly, um, what are the, the kind of essential um, uh, pieces of information architecture that, that you really want them to understand? So I try to break my, my IA class at General Assembly is a three-hour class, and it's broken into three sections, ontology, taxonomy and choreography. Um, and I think that those are, are three really important kind of emerging um, sections to look at within information architecture. And, and that, that framework is, um, is attributed to Dan Klein of uh, University of Michigan. And basically how you would look at each one of those things separately as a startup would be ontology is at the center of everything. Ontology means who are we, what language do we use to describe ourselves, and essentially what do we mean when we say what we say. So, for example, when Facebook decided to use the word like to basically change the world, that was an act of ontology. They could have chosen a different word for that same thing, um, and because of what they did choose, our life will forever be changed, right? The similar thing happened when the inventors of graphical user interfaces decided to invent the idea of a desktop and files and folders. Um, now we're moving away from the desktop web. What does that mean for our desktop computers that are in our laptops? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, so all of these kind of like language-based decisions, I would say, are at the core of everything. Um, and a lot of times what you see is that language is relegated to the marketing layer, and it's something that's sort of like painted on top, uh, similar to the way that you might have seen graphic design painted on top in the past. I think that words have started to get that treatment. Um, and what ends up happening is it ends up in your databases, right? So it sort of like leaks through the skin of your organization yeah. into the way that your data is structured. The next thing you know, you have barnacles and you've got multiples and you've got things to reconcile and you've got a mess. Um, so I would say that ontology and language is, is really at the, the center of things. Um, kind of wrapped around that is taxonomy. So what are the actual structures that you use to... Um, take that language and that meaning and deliver it successfully to your users without it losing things. Uh, And I see a lot of borrowed taxonomy. I see a lot of, especially startups that have the same, you know, single page parallax scroll ending with a mailing list sign up that everybody else has. And I I sort of wonder, is that, is that all, you know, is, is that all that we should have? Um, And I don't know how many people kind of invite themselves to consider past that. Um, and then also looking at taxonomy is more than just hierarchy. I think that a lot of times taxonomy gets a bad rap. It's like if you're not making a hierarchy-based website with tabs at the top, then you don't need to think about taxonomy. And it turns out that it, it also ends up in your database. Um, so taxonomy can be a very important kind of tool for understanding. Um, 
And then the last piece is really around choreography. So choosing very specifically and very intentionally what users are able to do when and how. Um, and I think that a, a product like Instagram, I see a lot of like choreographic choices that make that product really what it is. For example, you can't upload a picture on Instagram.com. Right. Oh, why is that? Like, I don't know. Right? I mean, it's <laughs> not hard to build. It's not that they haven't heard it before. I'm sure that every digital SLR lover in the whole world has, has written Instagram and been like, yo, dude, what mm -hmm. up? But the minute that they add that, they change their product. You know, the minute that they add that, they're no longer really instant, right? Uh, yep, yep. And then it's like there's this really like slip slidey way that all of a sudden they're adding, you know, albums and, and sets and, right. you know, all this other stuff that then what? You know, what are they? Are they Flickr? So I think that there's a lot that, especially um, in the startup world, that can be done around those kind of three elements to really think about differentiation from, from like a, a standpoint of a really crowded place that you're entering. Um, and then also, if you're in the lovely position of not being in a crowded market, um, I also think that those three things would help to introduce something new to a market that doesn't have language. Um, I'm, I was working with a, a 360 video uh, camera company recently, and, and they're coming into a market that doesn't have language, mm -hmm. you know, so they get to kind of be the inventors of that. And I think that there's a lot of responsibility. Um, if you're going to be the next Facebook, for example, be really careful what you call that button and be really careful that you don't add something that might be bad for humanity. You know, thank goodness nobody ever decided to add the uh, dislike button. That's true, despite all of the, the outcry for it. <laughs> yeah, but the world would be a worse place, right? Yes, I mean, yeah. I can't even imagine the metrics that might spike in uh, in adding something like that. So I think that we're spending a lot of time in these uh, these places that are made of information, and, and that, that takes a lot of uh, care and responsibility, you know? Yeah, it's an amazing way to think about it. I mean, my mind is already racing um, on the projects that, that I'm working on now. And I love that it all ends up in the database because that's so true. It all does. <laughs> so you you recently wrote um, a book, How to Make Sense of Any Mess. Um, what uh, what are we going to learn when we read it? Well, I, I really hope that you're going to learn not just what information architecture is, um, but also kind of how to bring it into whatever your context is. So I, I definitely did not write the book with the intention of making information architects as much as bringing information architecture to everyone. Because I, I think that um, this world is really complicated and there's a lot of things that we're all dealing with. And sometimes I, I do find that my personal advice to my friends about how to kind of deal with whatever's going on in their life does in a lot of cases resemble the advice I give to my students in IA class. So at a certain point, I, I kind of question whether or not that was really a thing. Um, right. <laughs> so I leave it. I believe it is. Uh, I wrote a book that is a, a seven step process to making sense of any mess. And mess is defined as any situation where information and people could be misinterpreted and cause some sort of dilemma. So who doesn't deal with that like a couple times every day? Um, that is yeah. the truth. Well, yeah. <laughs> what, it really, what it really seems like to me um, is a way, especially the, the three steps that you covered, is a way to discover who you are and who you aren't. Um, and that's something that's valuable to everybody. 
and especially something worth spending time on if you're just getting started with your company. Um, and I know that it's often either overlooked or kind of skipped through quickly because you think you have a good idea and you just move on to the next thing. Um, but really taking the time to think through it the way you described seems so massively valuable. Awesome. Well, that's always nice to hear. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with Michael. My head's just racing right now. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Where do we keep up with you? Um, buy the book uh, online. So I have a blog, uh, com, and there's definitely lots of information about the book on that site, as well as um, kind of some behind the scenes. Um, there's a full lexicon for the book, which I find to be the nerdiest part of this project, um, as well as kind of the many iterations that I went through, including the week that I decided to write an IA book for children. So you can see the pop-up version of the book. <laughs> I'm intrigued already. Totally worth seeing. You can get um, that for Elijah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and then in terms of buying it, the book is available in paperback and in Kindle on Amazon um, and internationally as well as in the U.S. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocket Ship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for our newsletter, where twice monthly we send out actionable advice for entrepreneurs and exclusive links to AMAs with our guests. That's rocketship.fm. Sign up today. Rocket